Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. My guest today is Jamila Glass. She is the first African-American artistic director of the Los Angeles Contemporary Dance Company. She's also a founding member of that dance company. She's a very celebrated choreographer, friends. You can see her work across all kinds of media, but most recently, you can see her work on Dear White People, where she works as series choreographer. Welcome to the podcast, Jamila. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited to uh, talk to you. I want to jump right in and ask you about something you said. You pointed out that the music and the movement elements in Dear White People are intended to serve as a metaphor for larger issues in society, race, racism, and the like. How do you tell those stories or have that conversation through dance? Well, first, there's so many layers to this question. First of all, us existing in the medium of television as dancers is already political because that is a space that we don't exist. If you look into the history of television and also into the history of musical episodes on television, musicals in general, if you wanna go outside of television, there's not that many instances of black dancers or non-white dancers being at the center of those stories. And you know, if you want to go even further, being at the center of stories that have a healthy budget and budget, you know, <laughs> has a nice range to it. But one of the things that I was really looking forward to with Dear White People was the. Sh- I was already a fan of the sh- of the series, and the cinematography on both the movie and the series is so beautifully done on melanated people and the music, just the way all of the departments support the series, I knew that we would be, as dancers, we would be in great hands stepping into that world. And I was really excited to see how that would look in this, you know, fictional Ivy League setting. So that's one instance. And then when you go even further into the types of issues and topics that Dear White People addresses, I think the arts always can add just a different perspective on on issues and and maybe Um, a different entry point. So for some people that might not really resonate with your standard news special or, you know, your news report, they might be able to have a a different entry point into music and dance because that's something that maybe more people would be open to. And so in the series, there were several scenes that one might not necessarily associate with dance, like um, talking about sex workers, talking about protesting a slaveholder's name on a building, a school building. Dance can provide like a different entry point and physicalize the things that we might not be able to say. Um, and I think that's what's interesting and what I love about musicals. I grew up on musicals, that when you get to that point where you don't really know what to do, you just have to dance it out or sing it out. You have to dance it out. Oh my, I've been there. I want to go back to something that you said about uh, the way that melanated people are presented. I mean, dance, it's so physical. It's such a physical art form. It's so visual. And there is really uh, something important about how the dancer and their body is celebrated. 
And so it's funny because Dear White People, uh, the movie and the TV series, they are particularly beautiful. Like they are beautiful. uh, They give you beautiful images to look at. And And it does have to do with whether or not you celebrate dark skin or don't celebrate dark skin, don't you think? Yeah, I think, well, even more than that, I think it's about how vast we are in the spectrum of skin color, you know, that we can have um, the deeply chocolate folks, and then we can have the much lighter skin folks, and all of those people and all the people in between, and that they're all a part of our experience and a part of our our culture. And they all, you know, beyond that, they have their own individual experience. I think that um, Black people have this collective experience, but we all we are still not a monolith. There's many things that I'm sure um, we might connect immediately on, and we just met today. But then there's other things that you know I may have not experienced that a fellow um, person has experienced who's also black. So I do think that it is pointed and it is intentional in Dear White People. And as the choreographer for the series, I was definitely intentional in the same way because I was able to help cast all of the dancers. So I was intentional in the people, you know, skill always first. You want people who can deliver um, as both dancers and actors. Um, but the, the hair texture, the, the, the skin tone, um, the body type, um, you know, the height, uh, all of those things, you know, cause we're in a real world, we're in a real fictional world. And so we want these dancers to not come in just looking like what might be considered a traditional dance body, but we want them to look like people who are going to Winchester university. And so I was definitely intentional about those people that I brought in so that they, they look like people, you know, and they, for the people who are watching Dear white people, they can also find someone that perhaps find someone that they can identify with. Oh, that looks like my cousin. That looks like my sister, my friend I went to school with, someone I saw walking down the street. It's about reflecting the diversity of Black people um, and and who we are. What were your favorite musicals growing up? Oh, man. I I watched a lot of the classics like Guys and Dolls. Um, One of my favorites is Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Uh, a lot of Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra uh, singing in the rain of Esther Williams productions with the with the swimming. So when you look at, you know, Gene Kelly or some of these old uh, musicals, my favorite, by the way, is Grease. And I want to talk to you about that because I feel like you got to maybe you could like redo it with the new cast. I'd be all up in it. Um, <laughs> not in not in it because I can't sing. But uh when you were watching, you know, as a young African-American woman, you're seeing these you know, beautiful dances happen. There's not a black person to be seen on screen unless, you know, he or she was serving uh, somebody. What was going through your head as a young kid looking at these images that you loved? I was drawn into the fantasy that these people could freely sing and dance in these gorgeous sets and beautiful clothes. And 
that that was fully realized in that world. So music and dance have been a part of my life since I was younger. So to see that supported on screen was really magical for me. I also went to performing arts high school. My, my older sister used to bring home these um, musicals from the library. So we would just have these musicals on hand and I would just watch and watch and watch them. I just, there was the freedom there, which I think is what dance and the arts give me that I saw in these people. And it's, it's so interesting that you said that about not seeing myself represented there because I think there's been, even now, you know, it, you know, this is across industries, but so many of us have had to try to find ourselves in things that are not representing us. And so, and it's hard to imagine yourself in spaces where you're, where you're not seen, but that's why the whiz, when I saw the whiz, the whiz, that took me out. It was, it was almost too much in the best way because it was so much melanin everywhere. Beautiful. Like the big scene when they come to Oz, I, I always forget the name of that scene, but when they change outfits like seven times, it's the green, they're wearing all green, all red, all gold. I couldn't believe how long that number was, how extravagant what it was. And they were so confident and bold in who they were. And so that, and then the the last scene, what can you feel a brand new day? I mean, I, I had never seen us on display in that way. And so that took it to another level. Those, those other musicals that I had seen before, I was like, oh, okay, um, this is where it's at. <laughs> Don't nobody bring me no bad news. I remember, I remember being a little kid and with my mom, we were at the, uh, it's now, I mean, back then, I think they called it something else, but it was at the Cinerama Dome. We were at the Cinerama Dome waiting to go see The Wiz. And I, it just, I mean, I don't think that at that age, I remember thinking like, I have not seen so many black people on a screen at the same time ever, ever. Uh, it was and that was a beautiful production. But you know, you talk about representation, and you talk about being able to get something from these musicals and these stories. How important is it, like, when you're talking to uh, young creatives, especially young creatives of color, especially young um, black women? How do you communicate to them? Sometimes you got to find your mentors and inspirations in places where there aren't many folks or any other folks who look like you. Sometimes there aren't enough of the folks who look like you to go around in order to mentor and to inspire uh, all the other folks who look like you. What's your advice? Like, How do folks like you and me uh, do a better job of communicating that message? Well, I think that people today are in a better position than we were growing up because they have access, even if it's through an internet at the public library, to YouTube. And there are so many creatives on YouTube. And not only that, there's so many videos of people who they might not have a direct connection to in, term, in terms of like person to person physically, but you can have mentors that you never actually speak to. If there's someone that, someone's career that you're interested in, someone's career that you want to maybe emulate, research is a big thing for me. And so I would say to try and seek out interviews behind the scenes, like any type of thing connected to that person or those people, that that's a great resource. And I don't think many young people do enough of that 
I think from my experience talking to people, it, it just seems like whatever is right in front of them is what they know. And so I would encourage them to just dig a little bit deeper because there's so many different people and also people who are way more accessible than one might think. Like, if, like maybe not Will Smith, but maybe, you know, someone who's directing a series director on a, an ABC series is way more approachable than a Will, a Will Smith and still has a lot to offer if you're talking about someone on the creative producing side. In terms of how I approach my talks with people, I, I remember what it was like and, you know, I'm still in the midst of it, but I, I remember what it's like, it was like to not feel seen. And so that's one thing that I try to lead with always. And I try to allow myself to remain approachable to folks who have questions about what I do, um, advice and things like that. Through LACDC, we've tried to create more opportunities and spaces for dancers to be able to ask questions, for dancers to be able to say, okay, I just got out of college. I'm trying to find a job. I have no idea what's going on. What, like, do you have any advice? And we have these discussions at our intensives where people can ask those real questions. We keep it open. You know, there's, there's no judgment. You know, people talk about mental health issues, which I think should be talked about more in the arts and beyond. I think allowing people to have the conversation or giving them the permission to ask questions and the permission to have the conversation really opens up so much because I think people feel like they have to know all the answers. And we don't know all the answers. I'm learning every day, all the time. Like I said, I love to research. And so I think if young people can use those resources that they do have access to, like um, the internet, but also if they have questions, then they should ask those questions, you know? And if that one person says no, there's always an, another person, like not to let that be, um, you know, the end of it. Talk to me about how you came to know that your path involved a career in dance, not just, you know, a hobby, not just something to do when you're fun, but that this would be your professional calling. How did you come to that decision? I started dancing in church when I was six or seven, and then I went into a studio I was doing well in the studio, moving up really fast. I come from a family of four girls. So I had three other sisters. Um, my parents said, we cannot just be waiting in the lobby for your thing. We have other children. So I had to kind of put dance on the back burner. And so from that point on, I was holding on to dance for dear life. Whenever, wherever I could get it, I would try to do it. And I would just pray, honestly, I would pray that dance would be a part of my life. I did not know what that meant because I wasn't on what I considered the right track to be a professional dancer. I assumed that I had to go to college for dance, that I had to go to some prestigious school for dance, and then I would get into a company somehow. But I just kept this, this dream going personally. And anytime I had a chance to dance, I would do it. But I wasn't able to train in the same way that I was do when I that I was able to when I was little. When I got to college, I was able to dance a little bit, but I was a film major at, at University of Southern California. But I still had this dream. I auditioned for the LA Contemporary Dance Company the day after I graduated from USC. And I've been in the company for 16 years. So you know, throughout my career, I've definitely had my professional career. I've definitely had imposter syndrome because I felt, I felt like I'm behind other people who've trained their whole lives. But 
I'm constantly reminded of other people's perspectives of what, how they see my career that I've been able to accomplish way more than many people who've had years and years of training have been able to. And so that definitely gives me some perspective and allows me to appreciate what, what I've been able to do. It was a dream I held on to really tightly. And then I went for an opportunity and then I, here I am. So have you ever found yourself in a situation where someone comes to you with a dream of being a dancer and um, a profession, a career in the arts is hard? Right. I'll be candid. If some, you know, young person came to me and they said, I want to be an actor or I want to go to law school, I'd say, you know what, you need to go to law school. Um, and then, you know, maybe you could write on the side, write yourself a movie on the side. Uh, have you ever been in a position where you said to somebody, you know what, you should do this. This should just be a hobby, but you don't quite have the thing. No, I've never said that because I do think that the dance industry is so vast. It really is. And, and I think you know, just like what I thought about, this is, you have to do this and this to become a professional dancer. There's so many pathways to becoming a professional. I think that there are way more opportunities for people than some might imagine. It might not be the exact thing that you want, like maybe not dancing behind Beyonce, but it might be going on tour with someone else and traveling the world. So I've never told anyone that, but I think the main thing is, do you love it? Because if you're in it for that one thing, that, you know, big accomplishment, or if you're in it for money or fame, because it's hard, like you said, if you, that might not be enough to sustain you. And the other thing that has helped to sustain me is that dance is not my life. So like I mentioned, I went to film school. I've been doing independent filmmaking for years, and I've also had a freelance editing company. So I've had other things that fill up my cup creatively that also pay the bills. So when dance isn't really popping like I want it to, I still have something else to fill me up. And so I would definitely encourage anyone who, who comes to me about a career in the arts to definitely have things that fill you up, whatever that might be. It could be knitting, you know, but you can have a whole amazing business knitting things for people. So um, that's the main thing that I would say is, do you love it? And if you love it, then, you know, pursue it. But it also, your career has to, has to shape shift sometimes. And it's not always going to look the way you want it to look. So in other words, you wouldn't, you're not a dream killer. <laughs> you're not going to kill somebody's dreams. And I think it's great advice, uh, regardless of your discipline, frankly, um, to have other eggs and other baskets. So, you know, in case something cracks, you've got to fall back. Um, what's been hard for you as a professional dancer? What's the, what's the, what's the, what's the most challenging piece of your work? The most challenging thing is feeling like I'm not enough. And that can take many different forms. It could mean because I'm not tall enough. Oh, they like the tall girls. So that's, they got that job or they got that featured piece. Or I'm not flexible enough. Or I don't have the special skill. I don't know how to do silks. So I didn't book the job on the tour because, or I don't know how to tumble. They like, they wanted to have dancers who also tumble. Or I'm not the right color for the job. In the commercial world, uh, meaning, and that means that covers uh, music videos, films, television, 
tours, commercials, a lot of casting comes down to the look and that's it. It really has not much to do with your skill set. The skill set comes second. You can't really compete with that. And uh, so that can play a lot of mental games with you. It's a constant state of asking myself, am I enough? I sh- oh, I didn't, I didn't train enough. I should have gone to that class and I w- may have met that person and I may have gotten that job. And so all of this second guessing, but I think knowing that I can do my best, I can prepare. And if the job is for me, it's for me. There will be something else. I didn't know that Dear White People was coming. I definitely didn't know it was going to be a musical season. I thought it would be an episode because that's what most television shows do. Um, But that Dear White People, me being the series choreographer on Dear White People completely changed my life. I became artistic director during the production of Dear White People, which was also a surprise to me. And I couldn't have predicted that. And I was just having a hard year. I mean, many of us were because we were in quarantine. I was just having a hard year and without knowing what was ahead, you know? And so it's hard when you're in the moment, though. It's really hard. And especially if you have, if your peers are succeeding in the way that you might want to. But it goes back to that love. Do you love it? Is this what you want to do? Um, is this worth fighting for? And, um, and how can this continue to add value to my life? And so I think I, I, I have a better grip on that imposter syndrome, that feeling like I'm not enough because I am enough. And, and, and I, I say it loudly and proudly now, now more than ever. Um, you know, I show up in, in this body and this skin and this hair. I like, <laughs> tried to change my hair temporarily, like with wigs, because I I didn't want to go through the whole thing. And it just didn't work for me. And I said, you know what, if I don't have the big curly wig thing that's in now for Black girls to getting booked, I'm just not going to get that job. It's it's fine. (laughs) You know, so I had to I had to I had to tell myself that I was enough and I wasn't going to jump through all these hoops to try and fit whatever tiny inkling of something I thought a producer or a casting director might want. How do you make sure that you believe yourself when you tell yourself that? Because, you know, we always use these words like, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, people love me, like, right? Like, we all are taught, like, all of these, like, motivational self-love things, but it only works if you really believe it, if you look in the mirror and believe those things when you say them. So, you know, and, and we all deal with imposter syndrome at times. I don't, I, I haven't uh, really talked to very many people um, and so, who are successful who don't struggle with it um, at different times. So how do you make sure you believe it? How do you get to the place where you know you are good enough? I think it's a daily fight. I, I have to tell myself again and again and again And it's a practice, just like a a person who does yoga or just like a person who exercises. You can exercise for a month and go to Jamaica and then come back, have that whatever body you were going for, come back from Jamaica and not do anything. And then, you know, your body might change a little bit. So you have to be in a state, a constant state of of going toward whatever that goal is. And if that goal is self-love, if that goal is self-care, you got to do it every day. And so that's what I, when I feel the, the thoughts coming, 
I say, nope. Okay. I got to, let me turn on some music. I got to, I got to fill myself up with something that's going to make me happy. So that might be my favorite song. That might be a Martin episode. I have a four-year-old that might be doing something silly with him. I have to address it right away because if I don't, I start to wallow and I start to believe those thoughts, you know, and sometimes it feels good to swallow. I don't know why we do that to ourselves, but that's the way that I combat it. I have to tell myself again, no, remember, remember who you are, (laughs) remember who you are. And it's constant. It's a constant thing. What is something that worries you? Like when you look out at the world, you just mentioned you have a four-year-old boy. What's something that concerns you? And part two of the question, uh, how do you think that the arts and dance in particular can help ease some of our anxiety and pain and sadness uh, that so many people are experiencing recently? One thing that worries me is what the world will look like for him. He's... He's, he'll be five on Sunday, actually. Um, he's full of joy. He loves to dance, loves to sing, very um, full of life. And so what worries me is the world trying to stifle that, that joy. And, and bringing it back to Dear White People, that's why it was so cathartic to be a part of that series. It's because it was healing for me to be surrounded by melanin in a creative space that I knew the world was going to see. So there were levels to it. You know, my husband and I just try to infuse the things that we think are important into him. You know, he's surrounded by great family and friends. He's growing up in an arts community, which I think is really important because he's able to see so many different kinds of people who are freely expressing themselves. So it kind of affirms him and the way he expresses himself. I think the arts and dance can remind people that they can, they can loosen up a bit, you know, that things don't have to be so structured and ordered that, that they can be free to be themselves. And I think even within dance, sometimes we can forget that we are allowed to do that, you know, because we have this technique over here and this technique over here. And, you know, we're trying to maybe, you know, embody some things that are uh, traditionally upheld as the way dance should look. But, you know, as artistic director, I'm, I'm definitely trying to tap into joy and into us being more of who we are instead of trying to emulate a European aesthetic or insert whatever aesthetic, like who are we? You know, we're We're um, a diverse company representing Los Angeles. There's so many body types in our company, people who went to college, people who didn't go to college, but they're all incredibly talented. Um, And by an audience coming to see those types of bodies on stage, then they can say, oh, that's me. You know, maybe they didn't feel like they had a place in dance or the arts, but by seeing such a wide variety of people, then maybe they can feel like they can tap back into that part of themselves. Before we go, uh, and I want you to uh, tell us a little bit uh, more about the company, but tell me something that makes you hopeful. What are you excited about? We spend so much time talking about 
what's bad, what's negative, what's going wrong? Uh, what's something that you think is going right in the world? One thing I'm excited about is that there are way more conversations about and people being open to change than when I was coming up. And so that makes me hopeful because it means that people are interested, that people are engaged, and that people care, <laughs> you know? And, and that's where it all starts. That's where change all starts. Um, with people willing to have conversations with folks that they might not agree with, that definitely makes me hopeful for the future um, because it means that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Tell us uh, just a little bit before you go about the Los Angeles Contemporary Dance Company, uh, where we can see them and what we will see. So the Los Angeles Contemporary Dance Company has been around since 2005. So we are about to go into our 17th year in 2022. I became artistic director on January 1st, 2021. We are a contemporary company that delves in Contemporary jazz, contemporary modern, contemporary ballet, more theatrical work. Sometimes you might hear us speaking on stage, singing on stage. We love to collaborate with architects and um, incredible costume designers, just really uh, being a voice of the artists in LA. We really love to elevate Los Angeles artists. We just shot a film that I directed uh, collaborating with the costume designer and sculpture designer Mimi Haddon. She creates these larger-than-life, very uh, whimsical pieces. And so in this film, you can't see our faces. Our faces are covered. We're, we're, we're creatures. And this film uh, also stars my four-year-old, Jelani. It's his, uh, it's his the biggest thing he's done so far on screen. And so he essentially loses a toy in his bedroom and accidentally falls into a toy chest looking for this toy. And then that takes into a different world full of these creatures that Mimi created. So that film is actually going to premiere on November 18th in Culver City. And we'll be doing an in-person screening uh, for that. So we're really looking forward to that. We'll have two show times. The first one is a family screening, which will include a dance along for kids. And then the second screening will include a talk back with myself and some of the other creatives, maybe Jelani. So you can get further information on our website, uh, org. And the next thing we're doing before the end of the year is um, we're collaborating with a Spanish choreographer named Che Ferrado. And he will be choreographing on the company and um, in a residency where we will be working with him for seven days. And at the end of that week, we will be doing a film that I will be directing. Um, and so this is in partnership with the Spanish consulate and that film will premiere before the end of the year. So we've really been focused on dance films this year and just kind of, you know, shifting our focus to things that we know we can do safely, that we um, can spend a bit more time with developing and that more people can see and will live on forever. So we're really excited to share that with everyone. And I'm really excited to see both of those uh, productions. Um, I'm free on November 18th, so if you want to invite me to the premiere, I'll be there. <laughs> um, you are amazing. I am so happy that we met. I'm so happy that you were here. Thank you for being on the show. Jamila Glass, series choreographer for Dear White People, artistic director of the Los Angeles Contemporary Dance Company. By the way, shout out to all of the incredible arts going on in my hometown of Los Angeles. 
thank you, Jamila, for being here. Please come back and uh, just keep it up. Keep it up, thank sis. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy about everything you're doing. Uh, thanks so much. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. 